I can't believe it, but as I was sitting up here on the platform, thinking back to when I first saw Don Sandberg, I had to go back 30 years. We are not that old. Yes, we are. Yes. Trouble is you don't look it and I do. That's just not fair. (laughs) Don was a student at Tennessee Temple along uh, with uh, myself and uh, where I met my wife, Marcia, and Don met Kay. I can still remember Don and Kay when they were dating, standing in the line waiting to get into uh, the cafeteria. And, and she, was, she was just, you know, instructing you in the way. I could tell you were all ears, and she, was, she had something important to say. I just stared clear. We, we, we didn't connect a lot. <laughs> Don, Don uh, Kay's going to get upset that I said that. You don't, you know... Well, okay, all right. She's, she is actually a professor at NC State, and just a wonderful testimony over there. Um, Don was there about the same time. David Loftus, he's younger than us, but he was there at the same time. Well, Don, uh, un- unbeknownst to me, uh, was living in Raleigh and teaching in a Christian school, teaching for a number of years, and uh, then went over to teach at another school, high school, science. And uh, 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 one of our students said... Um, you know, Mr. Sandberg, somebody that knows you is actually pastoring a church. And uh, he said, well, who's that? And, and uh, the student said, well, Stephen Davey. And so about seven years later, Don came over and visited. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if it was quite seven, but Don and Kay eventually came and, and uh, started coming a year after we moved on to our first phase of this campus. Uh, within a few years, um, uh, he joined our elder team and, and then took over. Uh, after Paul Jackson went home to be with the Lord as our pastor of adult ministries. It's a real blessing, loves the Lord, teaches in the seminary as well in the field of apologetics. Uh, very gifted man, and it's such a privilege to be able to introduce these guys to you. And uh, Don is no exception. Would you help me in welcoming our dear brother, Don Sandberg? Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Those are awfully kind words. I am so glad you all are here. I know that you uh, either lost a bet or... I, I think I was going to give $10 bills to everybody that came, and I just need to see a hand if you did not receive your $10 bill. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, well, check, the check's in the mail on that. Thank you for letting me speak. It is a, it is a privilege. It's always a privilege to stand behind a pulpit at Colonial Baptist Church, whether that's the morning or the evening service. This morning, David uh, had us sing a Charles Wesley classic hymn, And Can It Be. I didn't know he was going to sing that, but here's one of the stanzas that we sang this morning. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Just mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. I want to show you a typical family in Adam's helpless race, all right? I want you to notice especially that little tyke right in front of the lamp right there. That, that family right there is really an ordinary American family. It looks rather promising, or at least I think it does when I look at it. This is circa 1962, 63, a long time ago. In fact, of course, it's a family of sinners. I know the parents very well, and they are sinners. I knew the parents of the mother there. They were sinners. I did not know the parents of the father there. They emigrated from Sweden and died when he was young, but I know that they were sinners. And I have firsthand knowledge of the sinfulness of each of those children. 
Sometimes I was a compatriot of theirs in the sinful act. Sometimes I was the recipient of the sinful act. That sweet girl with the, um, I don't know what my mom was thinking about that hair that my sister is wearing right there, but um, perhaps it's some sort of a shocking electrical thing. But she one time chased me around the kitchen for several, uh, an hour or so with a spoonful of peanut butter when I was a little kid. And she, believe it or not, I, I don't have any problem with that, but she still feels guilty about that. That's a sinful family, and um, that's, that's the way they are. And you know what? I, I grew up to marry a sinner, too. She's, I love her with all my heart. She's back there, but I married a sinner. I, my choices were very, very few, so I just had to, <laughs> I had to marry a sinner. Now, it turns out that those two parents are still alive in their 80s and still serving their church, and I'm grateful to the Lord for that. The little girl is still a pastor's wife in Alabama. The older boy is still a pastor in Indiana, and that younger boy with that little, those little saddle shoes, he's still a missionary in Latvia. Um, that little boy with that handsome little um, bow tie jacket, he's still a doofus. The thing about all of them, though, the thing about everybody in that family is they all made a family switch at some point in their life, and that was a very, very crucial decision when they made that. They made a family switch. They all changed families. Look at this next slide. Look at that boy around age seven. That was the guy, I know you're thinking, was he on um, a television sitcom back in the 1960s, you were thinking? Was he, was he Chip on My Three Sons? That's when I was in college, there were several people that said to my wife that, hey, Kay, you're, are you dating Chip from My Three Sons? Um, but apparently the comb had not been invented when this, uh, this is about, about 1967. And once again, like my sister's hairdo, I'm not exactly sure what my mom was thinking on picture day at Kipling Elementary School. I, I showed this picture in my office and um, one of the ladies said, just ask, ask this question, how many um, children did your mother have? And I, I said four, and she said that's the explanation. The thing is, is this boy has more problems than his hair and his teeth. The problem he has is related to the family he was born into, and I really do love my family. But they got a problem, like everybody, every family in this, in this room. Fortunately for him, he left his first family as a teenager and got a new one. What that boy needed and got was a new family. Let me explain. The idea of a family relationship that goes beyond one's family of birth, one's human family, actually begins with Jesus. Let me show you how Jesus redefines the family. And let me go to several scattered passages in the scriptures before I eventually land in the book of Ephesians. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Being a part of Jesus' family comes also at great cost. Here's how Jesus 
describes what is at stake in redefining the family. This is from Matthew again, chapter 10, 34 through 39. He says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. If Jesus redefines his own family, then we must ask what's wrong with the old family, his human family. Why do we need a new family relationship anyway? What's wrong with your first family? What's wrong with your old family? My father's name is Donald, but the truth is my real father is Adam. You and I are probably a member of Adam's family. I thought about showing a picture of the Adam's family television, (laughs) but I thought you don't need one more distraction tonight, so I'm just going to apply. Some people would start singing the song and snapping the fingers too, so we don't want that. You and I are really a member of Adam's family, and this is the beginning of each person's problems. How did you get into Adam's family? You know, to be honest with you, my wife actually is a member of Adam's family. Her middle name is Adam's because her mother is actually an Adam's. So she really is a member of Adam's family twice. But only, um, really one of them is the main problem. What about Adam's family? How did you get into Adam's family? We entered Adam's family by the first birth, right? You know, guys, I want to ask, ask, why do we celebrate birthdays anyway? Why do we give credit to the one that was born? Why do we give gifts to the one who was born. I mean, think about that, especially that first birthday. Little baby, cake, one single candle, and ask yourself this question. What is this celebration all about? Exactly what did that baby do to deserve this? Mostly, they, they basically just uh, take up a lot of people's energy and time and sleep. They make a lot of smells, and they really don't contribute much to the family. Matter of fact, for a long time, kids don't contribute anything to the family, but we celebrate their birthdays anyway. Now, uh, I used to teach human anatomy. I know a little bit about reproductive biology, and I can tell you that babies have nothing to do with their birth or their conception. Uh, What should really be happening is we should celebrate birthdays by giving a cake and presents to the parents. But we don't, right? That's That's the right people that should get it. If my if my biology is correct, they're the ones that are responsible for the birth of the baby, Um, and, and. It's an interesting thing that the narcissism that everybody suffers from may have as its root the celebration of birthdays of children. Hey, I'm just kidding. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay to celebrate birthdays, but it's an odd thing. That the thing about it is that strikes me about, um, about little children who I do love dearly is that I know that they're in Adam's family, and that is the beginning and could be the end of all of their problems if they don't switch families like you and I have done. Here's the thing about the first birth. An important consequence of the first birth is that it means your physical ancestor is Adam. Have you ever thought about how great that should be to be actually related to Adam? It should be a great thing, the first man. Think about how handsome he must have been. 
Now, I don't know what Adam looked like, but it's, it's just a little bit weird for me to think that God was thinking to himself, now I'm going to create Adam and I'm going to make him only fairly handsome. But later on, after the effects of sin, there's actually going to be more handsome men, men that are more handsome than Adam. I don't know whether that's true or false, but I, I think of him, whatever handsome means, as being the most handsome person in the world. And I think of Eve as being, as we might say, drop-dead gorgeous. Because once again, the same thing, if, if Eve is not the most beautiful woman in the world, then it's, it's, it's interesting to think that later on somebody was more beautiful than Eve. And I also tend to think that Adam would also be the most intelligent person ever in the world, as well as Eve, with the highest IQ. I cannot prove that. That ought to be good reason to think that I, I have Adam and Eve's DNA in me, which I do. And that ought to be encouraging. But there's just really, really a big problem. None of that matters because... I suppose it's possible that you may be more handsome than Adam or more beautiful than Eve. You may even be smarter, I guess. No matter what, your relationship to Adam guarantees that the outcome is death, right? Romans 5.12, this is what Paul says. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. And then he said in 1 Corinthians 15, for Since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. There's another problem. The first birth also means as a sinner, your spiritual ancestor is the devil. Jesus had some really sobering words to the Pharisees in John chapter 8. John 8, 44 says, you are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And then John, the same writer, later on in his epistle said, No one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So, what's the consequence of that ancestry? The consequence of ancestry with Adam is that death is the outcome. For having the devil as your spiritual ancestor means that the outcome is judgment. One of the most important reasons we need the book of Revelation, which we're studying now, is that the the last book of the Bible, it helps us see the inevitable ending of the devil's story. We need to see that ending. He appeared first at the beginning of the story. We've got to see the ending of the story. The book of Revelation is so encouraging because we need to see that ending. It's one of final and everlasting judgment. But those, all those in the devil's family and not in the family of God share the same outcome. If you're going to share Adam's outcome, which is death, you're going to share the devil's outcome, which is judgment, unless you switch families, right? Now, what everybody needs is a new family, a new father, a new siblings. And everybody's growing up. There was always those times, I think, when you wished you had had a different father or a different mother, and I know you wanted different siblings. I don't feel the same way now about my siblings like I did back then. Now I love them, and I could spend every hour with them. My two brothers, which are, who are in ministry, 
I just admire them so much, and I aspire to be like them. But the thing is, is that to, to be in a new family, you're going to have to think differently about that old family. And what happened to all of my family is we got into a new family by a new birth, and that's the only way you're going to get in, right? Jesus told Nicodemus one time, you must be born again. So God's family is entered by the new birth. Here's what John says in 1 John 5.1. Well, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. And Peter took up the same thing. These two disciples, by the way, John and Peter, were very, very close to Jesus. Literally, physically close to him. So they heard these things over and over again. Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And here's the important thing, to obtain an inheritance, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Turn to the book of Ephesians, would you? And we'll stay there. Being born again puts you into a very special home, a home composed of people that God calls saints. Isn't that a great privilege that the person on your left and right, the person in front of you and behind you is a saint because they've switched families, are in a new family, they're in the family of God, right? Being born again puts you in a very special home, a home composed of people that God calls saints. And so here's what Paul said to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 2, 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. The outcome of being a part of God's household is that you receive an inheritance. I've often thought about what it would be like to inherit a pile of money. Surely there's going to be some people in here that actually can look forward to that. I'm sure you're not looking forward to so-and-so dying to get that inheritance. But when that happens, you're going to be really rich. I suppose there's going to be some people in here. So some people are waiting with great anticipation for a wealthy relative to die. Maybe, maybe not. It happens to some, but it's not going to happen to me, I'm sure. At one time, it would have been possible for me to have a great inheritance because I had learned when I was a little boy that my grandmother, my mom's mom, before she married my grandfather, had a few oil wells in Texas. They all grew up in Texas. But when my grandmother married my grandfather, who was a full-time, he was an evangelist, and... um, he, she sold all of that. I don't know what that was worth back then in the 1930s, but she sold all of that land and that oil and put it into my grandfather's ministry, and which my grandfather put to good use. Um, but it's all gone, of course, and my mom didn't get any of it, and I'm not getting it, and that's fine. I don't expect to get any inheritance on this earth. My own parents, God bless them, spent their entire life in commonly called what we call full-time Christian service. Besides the benefits of the people that they have influenced and knowing what they're going to face when they get to heaven, when their Savior says, well done to mom and dad, good and faithful servants. Other than that, they really don't have anything to show for all of those years. As I said, they're in their 80s. In fact, they've downsized their life so much that when myself and my sister and my two brothers go home to Tennessee to see them, everybody at one of the families has got to get a motel room because their house is so incredibly small. It just won't handle anybody but one other kind of couple. That's fine. They're as happy as they can be. 
Instead, I am, like my parents, a part of God's household, and I have an inheritance related to that relationship. So in that sense, then, I am filthy rich and can't wait to get my inheritance, which is my salvation. Consummated the fullness of it when I get to heaven. So the outcome of being a part of God's household is that you receive an inheritance. And so Paul says in Ephesians 1, 11, we have obtained an inheritance. And then a couple verses later, in verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So rather than judgment, the household of God, because of the regenerating work of Christ, receives not judgment, but a rich inheritance, which is our eternal joy and salvation. It's great to be in a room every Sunday with a bunch of rich people. That's really great. I like that. And I'm looking forward to that. That's what it means to be a part of the family of God and to have that. But in order for that to happen, we had to switch families, didn't we? That was a crucial thing. You had to get out of Adam's family and into God's family. Now, every family has a reason for its existence. Every family has some end that it's aiming for, whether it knows it or not. Adam's family seeks its own end. Members of Adam's family are ultimately seeking their own glory and their own wisdom. They're really good at it, too. Adam's family, they are experts at exalting themselves. Sometimes I admire how good they're at it. Members of God's family, though, God's household have a different purpose, right? We can know the goal and purpose of God's family, for it's the goal and purpose of the church. The family of God is the church. Now, here's the, here's the last thing I want to say. There are three things that Paul tells us that make up the purpose of the church. All in the book of Ephesians. Here's the first one. Number one, the purpose of the church, the purpose of the family of God, the purpose of you guys, the purpose of Colonial Baptist Church is to bring glory to God. That's what it says in Ephesians 1, 11 and then 12. Look at it, Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. Paul says, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to open Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Adam's family teaches us to exalt ourselves to seek our own ends. You guys know about the Hilton family? The Hilton Hotel family? You never think about it except if you stay at a Hilton Hotel. When you think of the word Hilton, you think of two girls, two Hilton daughters. That's what I think of now. The Hilton family of Hilton Hotels frame seems to be composed of a few daughters, Paris and Nikki Hilton, right? Who go around with a lot of money seeking their own fame and glory. People continue to search for the invisible talent that these ladies are supposed to have. <laughs> it seems to me, though, that they do not give their family really a, a good reputation. I don't ever see their parents on the news. I don't know what it's like to be them, but I would, I'd be embarrassed myself. But they've got a lot of money. And they got a lot of fame. We don't know why they have the fame, but they have a lot of fame. And so there's a t- kind of a typical example of Adam's family. The church, though, of course, the church and one of its local assemblies, Colonial Baptist Church, has as its purpose to be to the praise of God's glory, to continually display how great God is. When Colonial understands this well, Its members evaluate their decisions and actions by whether they will bring glory to God 
or glory to something else. Whether they bring glory to God or disrepute to God. The question the member of God's household should be asking is, will this word or this action cause people to value God more or less? God's glory is what is at stake. That's the responsibility about being in God's family. You used to have a responsibility about being in your family, right? Remember when people would say things like, aren't you so-and-so son or daughter? I had that happen to me on several occasions. Aren't you Don Sandberg's, Donald Sandberg's son? Yes. And that, just that idea without saying anything more was the idea was, well, you've got a reputation to hold up. What are you doing right now? And it struck me with a great amount of fear. It really worked. I knew that I had a reputation to hold up. Forget about it. That's Adam's family. I'm an adult now, and I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about what, what it means to be part of God's family and the reputation I'm holding up for God. Because my purpose to be in God's family is to bring glory to him. So now I have to check everything. Every action and every word I'm thinking about. Now, what are people going to say about my father? What are they going to think? And I have to think about it all the time. In the neighborhood, in the driveway, in the yard, at the store, on the sidewalk, and recreation, vacation, all, all possible places. I've got to think about that. Here's the second thing about God's family, the purpose of the church. It's to display the wisdom of God. To display the wisdom of God. Here's what Paul said in Ephesians 3, 10. Paul says that God's grace was given to him so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I don't have time to go through the context of Ephesians 10, but it is important. Wisdom that Paul is referring to here is the mystery of how, in Christ, Jews and Gentiles can be unified into one body, the church. The strangest thing observed about the early church was its composition of people that had nothing in common, right? You look through the window of an early church. This is remarkable. I won't mean so much to you now, but you've got to go back into first century Palestine and in that culture and see what people saw when they peered through the window of an early first century Christian church. You, you, you don't know anything about a class society like they had back then. You might think that India with its caste system has a class society. Go back to first century Palestine. What do you, what do you see when you look through the window? Jews, Gentiles, Samaritans, slave, rich, poor, Free, men, women, all together with equal standing, sitting next to each other, either on the floor or on benches. It was the weirdest thing in the world. The world had never seen something like that before, peering through the window of an early church. What is going on in that place that those social barriers would be broken down? In Christ, there is no disunity between man and woman, we see in Genesis 3. In Christ, there's no disunity between a slave and a master. The church is a unified body, and before Christ made this possible, this was a mystery from the beginning of time. And this mystery is revealed to none other than all the beings of the spirit world, angels and demons. You guys, 
I know you can't see them, and I'm glad we can't see them. It would be a frightening, frightening experience. But we are not the only ones in the room. And we don't need to see that because we couldn't function with seeing that. We always have an audience, the spiritual world that's watching, and they're mystified by the church, mystified by it. Because all these people are in unity. When the church is seen to be composed of people of both genders, of all races, of all ages, and in any station of life, then the church displays the wisdom of God to the world. And I would say this, when Colonial understands this well, its members seek to accept and love all professing believers regardless of race, financial status, or level of spiritual maturity. Here's the third thing from Ephesians that the church, the family of God, does as its purpose. Number three, to nurture maturity in its members. To nurture maturity in its members. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 12 and 13. It says that Christ gave the church pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. To the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. My mother and father more than adequately equipped me to grow into adulthood. Okay, see, I made it. Look at this. I completed that goal many years ago. Now I'm not growing more mature so much as I'm growing older. I have more gray hair, even if it can't be seen. I have more wrinkles. Of course, I do the Botox thing, so that helps a little bit. (laughs) Bigger bags under my eyes and an expanding waistline. I'm not growing up. Really, I'm growing out. Just like my elderly parents, I wake up every morning also at 3 a.m. for no useful reason at all. (laughs) This started just a couple years ago, and I know it will plague me to the end of my days. It happened actually last night at 2.30 in the morning. I actually got up, went to the computer, did a few things, then went back to bed again. My wife even says I snore. The church also has its purpose, the task of making its members more mature. And for each of us, maturing in Christ continues all of our days. So I'm not finished. I'm not finished by a long shot. The church seeks to make each member a copy of the fullness of what Jesus is, not what your parents are. Is that what's going on at Colonial? Are you involved in something that is causing you to mature in Christ so that you become more and more and more like him, slowly but surely? Are you involved in somebody else's life for that task? See, the standard is nothing less than Jesus. It's not Abraham, it's not Paul, it's not Calvin, it's not Stephen Davey, it's not Don Samberg, it's Jesus. That's a pretty high standard. When Colonial understands this, its members are proactive in building into each other's lives anything that causes another member to become more like Jesus. In other words, when Colonial understands this, it is active in disciple-making. This is our challenge. You guys, this, this is not just the cream of the crop at our church. This is the cream of the cream of the crop. So I know you care about other people, and I know you care about nurturing people so they become mature in Christ. 
To know what Christ is like means to study his life. You must be in his word. And then you imitate the life of Christ every second of your life. People watch and they imitate. And then you get involved in people's lives. That's one-on-one. That's small groups. Family first. Husbands, your wife is the first person you disciple. Second is your children. And then other people, nurturing them to become mature in Christ. If you are not involved in helping somebody else be more like Christ, you're one of the dysfunctional family members. Next week, Lord willing, I I want to expand on the subject of family resemblance. So I want to talk about next week, Lord willing, about what it means if you're related to Jesus, what that means as far as resemblance and what that looks like and how God does that. How does God make one of his children to become look, look more and more like him. And then, Lord willing, two weeks from now, family dynamics. What's it like to be in the family of God? How should it look? I hope that uh, you'll be here for that. I'm always grateful for when people listen carefully. Let's close in prayer. Father, we want to love you like you say that we're supposed to. We will need your help to do that. I pray for my brothers and sisters, my eternal brothers and sisters in this room, and for all of those at Colonial, that we would understand the purpose of being in the family of God, to bring you glory, to build up the body, and to be, Lord, involved in your family's life and what's going on. Help us to do that, to endeavor to do that this week. Father, deliver us from the evil one, Help us to be faithful in the task that you give us. I might pray, Father, one more time for all of the people in our body who are suffering from unemployment or are fearful about losing their jobs, that they might find all of their strength in you, that they will claim your promises of your word, that you are a father who looks after his children and will care for them. Give them strength, Lord, that their faith will not fail, that they would set a good example in a very trying time to their families. Let us return, Father, safely home and be uh, faithful at your work starting on Monday. We pray this in Christ's name for his sake. Amen.